Everybody dies, don't they? A Strange Christmas Game by Charlotte Riddell When, through the death of a distant relative, I, John Lester, succeeded to the Martingdale estate, there could not have been found in the length and breadth of England a happier pair than myself and my only sister Clare. We were not such utter hypocrites as to affect sorrow for the loss of our kinsman, Paul Lester, a man whom we had never seen, of whom we had heard but little, and that little unfavourable, at whose hands we had never received a single benefit, who was, in short, as great a stranger to us as the then Prime Minister, the Emperor of Russia, or any other human being utterly removed from our extremely humble sphere of life. His loss was very certainly our gain. His death represented to us not a dreary parting from one long-loved and highly honoured, but the accession of lands, houses, consideration, wealth to myself, John Lester Esquire, Martingdale, Bedfordshire, Wylam John Lester, artist and second-floor lodger at 32 Great Smith Street, Bloomsbury. Not that Martingdale was much of an estate as country properties go, the Lesters, who had succeeded to that domain from time to time during the course of a few hundred years, could by no stretch of courtesy have been called prudent men. In regard of their prosperity, they were indeed scarcely honest, for they parted with manors and farms, with common rights and advowsons, in a manner at once so baronial and so unbusinesslike that Martingdale at length, in the hands of Jeremy Lester, the last resident owner, melted to a mere little dot in the map of Bedfordshire. Concerning this Jeremy Lester there was a mystery. No man could say what had become of him. He was in the oak parlour at Martingdale one Christmas Eve, and before the next morning he had disappeared, to reappear in the flesh no more. Overnight one Mr. Hawley, a great friend and boon companion of Jeremy's, had sat playing cards with him until after twelve o'clock chimes, then he took leave of his host and rode home under the moonlight. After that, no person, as far as could be ascertained, ever saw Jeremy Lester alive. His ways of life had not been either the most regular or the most respectable, and it was not until a new year had come in without any tidings of his whereabouts reaching the house that his servants became seriously alarmed concerning his absence. Then inquiries were set on foot concerning him, inquiries which grew more urgent as weeks and months passed by without the slightest clue being obtained as to his whereabouts. Rewards were offered, advertisements inserted, but still Jeremy made no sign. And so, in the course of time, the heir at law, Paul Lester, took possession of the house, and went down to spend the summer months at Martingdale with his rich wife and her four children by a first husband. Paul Lester was a barrister, an overworked barrister who everybody supposed would be glad enough to leave the bar and settle at Martingdale, where his wife's money and the fortune he had accumulated could not have failed to give him a good standing even among the neighbouring country families, and perhaps it was with such intention that he went down into Bedfordshire. If this were so, however, he speedily changed his mind, for with the January snows he returned to London, let off the land surrounding the house, shut up the hall, put in a caretaker, and never troubled himself further about his ancestral seat. Time went on, and people began to say the house was haunted. 
that Paul Lester had seen something, and so forth, all which stories were duly repeated for our benefit when, forty-one years after the disappearance of Jeremy Lester, Claire and I went down to inspect our inheritance. I say our because Claire had stuck bravely to me in poverty, grinding poverty, and prosperity was not going to part us now. What was mine was hers, and that she knew, God bless her, without my needing to tell her so. The transition from rigid economy to comparative wealth was, in our case, the more delightful also, because we had not in the least degree anticipated it. We never expected Paul Lester's shoes to come to us, and accordingly it was not upon our consciences that we ever had in our dreariest moods wished him dead. Had he made a will, no doubt we should never have gone to Martingdale, and I, consequently, never written this story, but luckily for us he died intestate, and the Bedfordshire property came to me. As for the fortune, he had spent it in travelling and in giving great entertainments at his grand house in Portman Square. Concerning his effects, Mrs. Lester and I came to a very amicable arrangement, and she did me the honour of inviting me to call upon her occasionally, and, as I heard, spoke of me as a very worthy and presentable young man for my station, which, of course, coming from so good an authority, was gratifying. Moreover, she asked me if I intended residing at Martingdale, and on my replying in the affirmative, hoped I should like it. It struck me at the time that there was a certain significance in her tone, and when I went down to Martingdale and heard the absurd stories which were afloat concerning the house being haunted, I felt confident that if Mrs. Lester had hoped much, she had feared more. People said Mr. Jeremy walked at Martingdale. He had been seen, it was averred, by poachers, by gamekeepers, by children who had come to use the park as a near-cut to school, by lovers who kept their tryst under the elms and beeches. As for the caretaker and his wife, the third in residence since Jeremy Lester's disappearance, the man gravely shook his head when questioned, while the woman stated that wild horses, or even wealth untold, should not draw her into the red bedroom, nor into the oak parlour after dark. I've heard my mother tell, sir, it was her as followed old Mrs. Reynolds, the first caretaker, how there were things went on in these self-same rooms as might make any Christian's hair stand on end, such stamping and swearing and knocking about on furniture, and then tramp, tramp, up the great staircase, and along the corridor, and so into the red bedroom, and then bang, and tramp, tramp again. Uh, they do say, sir, Mr. Paul Lester met him once, and from that time the oak parlour has never been opened. I never was inside it myself. Upon hearing which fact, the first thing I did was to proceed to the oak parlour, open the shutters, and let the august sun stream in upon the haunted chamber. It was an old-fashioned, plainly furnished apartment, with a large table in the centre, a smaller in a recess by the fireplace, chairs ranged against the walls, and a dusty, moth-eaten carpet upon the floor. There were dogs on the hearth, broken and rusty, there was a brass fender tarnished and battered, a picture of some sea-fight over the mantelpiece, while another work of art about equal in merit hung between the windows. Altogether an utterly prosaic and yet not uncheerful apartment, from out of which the ghosts flitted as soon as daylight was let into it, and which I proposed as soon as I felt my feet, 
to redecorate, refurnish and convert into a pleasant morning room. I was still under thirty, but I had learned prudence in that very good school necessity, and it was not my intention to spend much money until I had ascertained for certain what were the actual revenues derivable from the land still belonging to the Martingdale estates and the charges upon them. In fact, I wanted to know what I was worth before committing myself to any great extravagance, and the place had for so long been neglected that I experienced some difficulty in arriving at the state of my real income. But in the meanwhile, Claire and I found great enjoyment in exploring every nook and corner of our domain, in turning over the contents of old chests and cupboards, in examining the faces of our ancestors looking down on us from the walls, in walking through the neglected gardens, full of weeds, overgrown with shrubs and birdweed, where the boxwood was eighteen feet high, and the shoots of the rose-trees yards long. I have put the place in order since then. There is no grass on the paths, there are no trailing brambles over the ground, the hedges have been cut and trimmed, and the trees pruned, and the boxwood clipped. But I often say nowadays, that in spite of all my improvements, or rather in consequence of them, Martingdale does not look one half so pretty as it did in its pristine state of uncivilised picturesqueness. Although I determined not to commence repairing and decorating the house till better informed concerning the rental of Martindale, still the state of my finances was so far satisfactory that Claire and I decided on going abroad to take our long-talked-of holiday before the fine weather was past. We could not tell what a year might bring forth, as Claire sagely remarked, it was wise to take our pleasure while we could, and accordingly, before the end of August arrived, we were wandering about the continent, loitering at Rouen, visiting the galleries at Paris, and talking of extending our one month of enjoyment into three. What decided me on this course was the circumstance of our becoming acquainted with an English family who intended wintering in Rome. We met accidentally but discovering that we were near neighbours in England, in fact, that Mr. Cronson's property lay close beside Martingdale, the slight acquaintance soon ripened into intimacy, and ere long we were travelling in company. From the first, Clare did not much like this arrangement. There was a little girl in England she wanted me to marry, and Mr. Cronson had a daughter who certainly was both handsome and attractive. The little girl had not despised John Lester artist, while Miss Cronson indisputably set her cap at John Lester of Martingdale, and would have turned away her pretty face from a poor man's admiring glance. All this I can see plainly enough now, but I was blind then, and should have proposed for Maybell, that was her name, before the winter was over, had news not suddenly arrived of the illness of Mrs. Cronson senior. In a moment the programme was changed. Our pleasant days of foreign travel were at an end. The Cronsons packed up and departed, while Clare and I returned more slowly to England, a little out of humour, it must be confessed, with each other. It was the middle of November when we arrived at Martingdale, and found the place anything but romantic or pleasant. The walks were wet and sodden, the trees were leafless, there were no flowers save a few late pink roses blooming in the garden. It had been a wet season, and the place looked miserable. Claire would not ask Alice down to keep her company in the winter months as she had intended, and for myself the Cronsons were still absent in Norfolk, where they meant to spend Christmas with old Mrs. Cronson, now recovered. Altogether 
Martingdale seemed dreary enough, and the ghost stories we had laughed at while sunshine flooded the room became less unreal when we had nothing but blazing fires and wax candles to dispel the gloom. They became more real also when servant after servant left us to seek situations elsewhere, when noises grew frequent in the house, when we ourselves, Claire and I, with our own ears, heard the tramp, tramp, the banging and the chattering which had been described to us. My dear reader, you doubtless are free from superstitious fancies. You poo-poo the existence of ghosts and only wish you could find a haunted house in which to spend the night, which is all very brave and praiseworthy. But wait till you are left in a dreary, desolate old country mansion filled with the most unaccountable sounds, without a servant, with none save an old caretaker and his wife, who, living at the extremest end of the building, heard nothing of the tramp, tramp, bang, bang, going on at all hours of the night. At first I imagined the noises were produced by some evil-disposed persons, who wished, for purposes of their own, to keep the house uninhabited. But by degrees Claire and I came to the conclusion the visitation must be supernatural, and Martingdale by consequence untenantable. Still, being practical people, and, unlike our predecessors, not having money to live where and how we liked, we decided to watch and see whether we could trace any human influence in the matter. If not, it was agreed we were to pull down the right wing of the house and the principal staircase. For nights and nights we sat up till two or three o'clock in the morning, Claire engaged in needlework, I reading with a revolver lying on the table beside me, but nothing, neither sound nor appearance rewarded our vigil. This confirmed my first idea that the sounds were not supernatural, but just to test the matter, I determined on Christmas Eve, the anniversary of Mr. Jeremy Lester's disappearance, to keep watch myself in the red bedchamber. Even to Claire I never mentioned my intention. About ten, tired out with our previous vigils, we each retired to rest. Somewhat ostentatiously, perhaps, I noisily shut the door of my room, and when I opened it half an hour afterwards, no mouse could have pursued its way along the corridor with greater silence and caution than myself. Quite in the dark, I sat in the red room. For over an hour I might as well have been in my grave for anything I could see in the apartment. But at the end of that time the moon rose and cast strange lights across the floor and upon the wall of the haunted chamber. Hitherto I had kept my watch opposite the window. Now I changed my place to a corner near the door where I was shaded from observation by the heavy hangings of the bed and an antique wardrobe. Still I sat on, but still no sound broke the silence. I was weary with many nights watching and tired of my solitary vigil. I dropped at last into a slumber, from which I wakened by hearing the door softly opened. John? said my sister, almost in a whisper. John, are you here? Yes, Claire, I answered, but what are you doing up at this hour? Come downstairs, she replied. They are in the oak parlour. I did not need any explanation as to whom she meant, but crept downstairs after her, 
warned by an uplifted hand of the necessity for silence and caution. By the door, by the open door of the oak parlour, she paused, and we both looked in. There was the room we left in darkness overnight, with a bright wood fire blazing on the hearth, candles on the chimney-piece, the small table pulled out from its accustomed corner, and two men seated beside it, playing at cribbage. We could see the face of the younger player. It was that of a man about five-and-twenty, of a man who had lived hard and wickedly, who had wasted his substance and his health, who had been, while in the flesh, Jeremy Lester. It would be difficult for me to say how I knew this, how in a moment I identified the features of the player with those of the man who had been missing for forty-one years. Forty-one years, that very night. He was dressed in the costume of a bygone period. His hair was powdered, and round his wrists were the ruffles of lace. He looked like one who, having come from some great party, had sat down after his return home to play cards with an intimate friend. On his little finger there sparkled a ring. In the front of his shirt there gleamed a valuable diamond. There were diamond buckles in his shoes, and according to the fashion of his time he wore knee-breeches and silk stockings, which showed off advantageously the shape of a remarkably good leg and ankle. He sat opposite the door, but never once lifted his eyes to it. His attention seemed wholly concentrated on the cards. For a time there was utter silence in the room, broken only by the momentous counting of the game. In the doorway we stood, holding our breath, terrified, and yet fascinated by the scene that was being acted before us. The ashes dropped on the hearth softly, and like the snow, we could hear the rustle of the cards as they were dealt out and fell upon the table. We listened to the count, fifteen one, fifteen two, and so forth. But there was no other word spoken till at length the player whose face we could not see exclaimed, I win, the game is mine. Then his opponent took up the cards, sorted them over negligently in his hand, put them close together, and flung the whole pack in his guest's face, exclaiming, Cheat! Liar! Take that! There was a bustle and confusion, a flinging over of chairs and fierce gesticulation, and such a noise of passionate voices mingling that we could not hear a sentence which was uttered. All at once, however, Jeremy Lester strode out of the room in so great a hurry that he almost touched us where we stood, out of the room, and tramp, tramp, up the staircase to the red room, whence he descended in a few minutes with a couple of rapiers under his arm. When he re-entered the room he gave, as it seemed to us, the other man his choice of the weapons, and then he flung open the window and after ceremoniously giving place for his opponent to pass out first, he walked forth into the night air, Claire and I following. We went through the garden and down a narrow, winding walk to a smooth piece of turf, sheltered from the north by a plantation of young fir trees. It was a bright moonlight night by this time, and we could distinctly see Jeremy Lester measuring off the ground. When you say three, he said at last to the man whose back was still towards us. They had drawn lots for the ground, and the lot had fallen against Mr. Lester. 
He stood thus with the moonbeams falling upon him, and a handsomer fellow I would never desire to behold. One, began the other, two, and before our kinsman had the slightest suspicion of his design he was upon him, and his rapier threw Jeremy Lester's breast. At the sight of that cowardly treachery Clare screamed aloud. In a moment the combatants had disappeared, the moon was obscured behind a cloud, and we were standing in the shadow of the fir plantation, shivering with cold and terror. But we knew at last what had become of the late owner of Martingdale, that he had fallen not in a fair fight, but foully murdered by a false friend. When late on Christmas morning I awoke, it was to see a white world, to behold the ground and trees and shrubs all laden and covered with snow. There was snow everywhere, such snow as no person could remember having fallen for forty-one years. It was on just such a Christmas as this that Mr. Jeremy disappeared, remarked the old sexton to my sister, who had insisted on dragging me through the snow to church, whereupon Clare fainted away and was carried into the vestry, where I made a full confession to the vicar of all we had beheld the previous night. At first that worthy individual rather inclined to treat the matter lightly, but when a fortnight after the snow melted away and the fir plantation came to be examined, he confessed there might be more things in heaven and earth than his limited philosophy had dreamed of. In a little clear space just within the plantation, Jeremy Lester's body was found. We knew it by the ring and the diamond buckles and the sparkling breastpin, and Mr. Cronson, who in his capacity as magistrate came over to inspect these relics, was visibly perturbed at my narrative. Pray, Mr. Lester, did you see in your dream the face of, of the gentleman, your kinsman's opponent? No, I answered. He sat and stood with his back to us all the time. There's nothing more, of course, to be done in the matter, observed Mr. Cronson. Nothing, I replied and there the affair would doubtless have terminated. But that, a few days afterwards, when we were dining at Cronson Park, Clare all of a sudden dropped the glass of water she was carrying to her lips, and exclaiming, Look, John, there he is! rose from her seat, and with a face as white as the tablecloth, pointed to a portrait hanging on the wall. I saw him for an instant, when he turned his head towards the door as Jeremy Lester left it, she explained. That is he. Of what followed after this identification, I have only the vaguest recollections. Servants rushed hither and thither, Mrs. Cronson dropped off her chair into hysterics, the young ladies gathered round their mamma, Mr. Cronson, trembling like one in an ague fit, attempted some kind of an explanation, while Clare kept praying to be taken away only to be taken away. I took her away, not merely from Cronson Park, but from Martingdale. Before we left the latter place, however, I had an interview with Mr. Cronson, who said the portrait Clare had identified was that of his wife's father, the last person who saw Jeremy Lester alive. He's an old man now, finished Mr. Cronson, a man of over eighty, who has confessed everything to me. You won't bring further sorrow and disgrace upon us by making this matter public. I promised him I would keep silence. But the story gradually oozed out, and the Cronsons left the country. 
My sister never returned to Martingdale. She married and is living in London. Though I assure her there are no strange noises in my house, she will not visit Bedfordshire, where the little girl she wanted me so long ago to think of seriously is now my wife and the mother of my children. Everybody dies, don't they? So I got that story from the anthology Chill Tidings, Dark Tales of the Christmas Season, edited by Tanya Kirk, and it's one of the British Library um, Tales of the Weird thing. Now, I noticed that their library is ever-growing, and in fact, I saw on Instagram that you can subscribe and get one every month. Imagine every month? Imagine that uh, for £9.99 Um I just bought the latest one. I was in the bookshop. Surprise, surprise. And uh, I, I bought that Circles of, I can't remember it's called Circles of Power or something. It's about stone circles anyway. It's the latest one. I'll add it to my to-be-read pile. Let me tell you something um, f- about her. We've done uh, Mrs. Gaskell. Oh, no, this is Charlotte Riddle. Oh, I do mix them up, mix them up. We've done some Charlotte Riddell or Riddle. I had a... When I was in the uh, Territorial Army, I had a sergeant called Sergeant, looked like Riddle to me. He was from Fife, I think, and he insisted, Charlotte Riddell. He was a brute. He was beastly to me. Let me tell you, he was rather beastly. He was, he was horribly cruel to me. He was, he was, he was. Anyway, he says, you're a, you say what you are, Walker, you're a, and then he would make me say it. And then it came to a point where he, it was a very bad word. And I said, I'm not saying that. And he was kind of then stumped because he either had to punch me or let me away with it. And he, and, and he kind of, I could just see that he was stumped. That's, that's what happens with bullies. Anyway, by the by. So I realise there are some people, there are a minority, a benighted minority, of course, who do not listen to this after, this after, uh, after story chat. Some have referred it to as the blether. Well, blether them. For all of you people who don't like this, here's a, here's a word for you. Stop. You can listen to the stories, then just when you hear the doo doo, no, it didn't go like that. Whatever it goes like, some come back, you know, um, then stop listening. And, and for those of you, the, the glitterati, the cognoscenti, the, pri- the privileged ones, my, my friends and family, come on into the blether. So um, this was first published, A Strange Christmas Game. By Charlotte Riddell. That's the game of cribbage, which I don't really understand at all. But obviously people do because they're always doing it in Victorian times. But I'd never learned how to play it. And also, my mother would play bridge, go to a bridge club. And I know that some of you are going to be absolute bridge fanatics. But I couldn't see the point of it. It just seemed it was complicated for its own reason. It, it was just there was no other reason for it to be so complicated other than it was supposed to be complicated. And I thought, well, why would you play something that was so complicated? Because look at this, there's some, some board games that are very, very complicated, particularly these um, Arkham Horror ones, if you know what I'm talking about. And they're really, really complicated. But they are complicated so you can play the game to kind of give you an experience. But Bridge is just complicated for the sake of being complicated, as far as I can tell. I may have lost some people over it, never mind. Uh, so Charlotte Riddell, A Strange Christmas Game, first published in the Broadway magazine, you know in Victorian times and into... Edwardian times. Most of these things were published in fiction magazines. You bought a fiction magazine, magazine, it was full of fiction. That's a thought, isn't it? I quite fancy that, you know. 
I quite fancy doing like a gothic. Don't, st- I haven't got enough time for any projects at the moment, but that would be kind of fun, wouldn't it? A, a proper print one with really good illustrations, dead kind of gothic classic ghost stories magazine. How about that? Or zine? No, not zine. I think it's got to be magazine to be more classic. Um, if you'd be up, for- don't start me off, please. But if you would be up for that, just send me a line at classic. Don't, no, no. It, well, it is classic ghost. Classic ghost podcast at Gmail. I don't know what I'm doing because I haven't got time to do anything now. Anyway, Charlotte Riddell, 1832-1906, was born Charlotte Eliza Lawson Cowan. She grew up in a relatively wealthy Anglo-Irish family in County Antrim. Her father was a flax and cotton spinner, but was an invalid by the time she was born. When he died in 1851, his money passed to the family of his first wife, and his second wife, Charlotte's mother, received very little. Charlotte started writing fiction as a way of earning money to keep them both good lass. And in 1855, they moved to London, where Charlotte's mother died a year later. In 1857, Charlotte married Joseph Hadley Riddle, a patent agent. She continued to derive an income from her novels and stories, as well as editing magazines. She could come and do this one. I mean, the fact that she's dead, I think, would add to the cachet, don't you think? You know, classic ghost stories edited by a classic ghost story editor who's a classic ghost and a ghost story editor. Mm. She became sole earner after her husband's bankruptcy in 18... These blokes weren't much use, were they? Bankruptcy in 1871. She died of breast cancer in 1906, having been... How, how old would she be? She wouldn't be that old. She'd be... Um, she was born in six days, she was 30. Oh, no, that's not very old at all. So she was um, 38, having been supported in the last years of her life by grants from the Royal Literary Fund and Society of Authors. Good for them. Although most of her work after her marriage appeared under the name of Mrs. J.H. Riddell, or Riddle, she also wrote under a number of pseudonyms and also sometimes anonymously. As a result, it is hard to trace the full extent of her literary output, but it is large, driven by the financial burden she was under for most of her life. In addition to many short stories written for the popular periodicals, she also wrote novels. Today, she's best known for her many ghost stories, some of which drew on the folklore of her native island. As in this story, her ghosts often acted as agents of avengement, which of course is a classic role for a ghost. Think of Hamlet, um, Shakespeare's Hamlet, but you know, I think going back to the biblical stories as well. So um, there we are. What a great last. So the story itself, what? I mean, it was your classic ghost story. It's just the sort of story you want to be listening to before the Christmas period. It's dark. They've got this old mansion house with creaking, with ghosts. But when it's um, doing well, it's, um, it's got a fire on. It's got candles blazing. It's, it's amazing, isn't it? Proper ghosts that make a noise about revenge. Nothing too sophisticated, but there we are. And so it's built up rather nicely and through him. And we get um, the, the painter the, who's risen. So we're, our sympathies are with him. It's a save the cat thing. There's nothing about this guy. We, he never does anything we don't, don't like. He loves his sister. His sister's stuck through him. He sticks by his sister. He ends up marrying the poor girl who's nice rather than Maybell, who's a bit of a snotty mare. And... Um, so, you know, we like him for that. He prefers the decent and the honest rather than the sophisticated and flashy. We like that. He's doing his best to do the house up. He, 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 um, he doesn't gain his fortune by anything bad. Um, so he's a pure, purebred man. 
I don't mean purebred, but pure, pure lucky, pure. Yeah, but we like him. There's nothing bad about him. In a sense, um, him and his sister have very little to do with the ghost. Probably that wouldn't get published these days because there's no kind of personal involvement. There's no, it's, a lot of it's done, it's actually reported in the third person, isn't it? And they prefer kind of action scenes. But I think if we're going to do it as a modern one, we'd begin with a car chase around uh, Los Angeles um, uh, in the snow, obviously, which I don't think happens very much there. But um, maybe yeah, New York, maybe we could get. Yeah, there's plenty of snow in New York, and um, and they they wouldn't be brother and sister. They would be uh, detectives, partners who hate each other but kind of love each other as well. As the thing goes on, they would both be gorgeous, gorgeous, um, and um, they would have a certain chemistry, and they would go to this uh, haunted mansion that was owned by old Paul Lester, who moved out. In fact, I can see it as a Netflix story, but then we'd have to ruin it, wouldn't we? Um, we'd have to just really ruin it by making it crass. Um, but, you know, Charlotte doesn't do that. That's, it's, a, it's just a great story, isn't it? You know, it has, it has the gothic edifice, it has the ghosts, it has the noise, it has the servants who can't stay, it has the snow, it, the rain. It's just f fabulous. Um, and... The, the Cronsons, of course, even they escape guilt. So this is a story that isn't looking to make anybody have a hard time. We're not looking for villains, murderers, or worse, are we? So um, a good old story. She, she, and clearly, you know, and I'll tell you a thing, a thing I've learned is the more you write, the better you get at writing. How some of you may say, well, that's not true in your case. But, um, but um, I think in general terms, the more you do anything, I mean, the more you build walls, the better you get at building walls. You know, the more you drive cars, the more you make bread, the more you, okay, enough of those. Um, so, uh, and clearly she, she wrote a lot of stories. She knew exactly what she was doing and she delivered on the nose it's exactly what we want. Now, we're going we're gonna to go to stage two blether now. Stage one blether is talking about the story with mild digressions, some of which can be quite torturous, tortuous, and go off tangents. But in general, they are still relatively connected to the story. And then stage two blether goes deeper, and it is just like me talking about stuff that has nothing at all to do with it. You'll see, no, it's, yeah, stage two is vaguely so. Anyway, I'm going to, this is an example of stage two blether. So you know that I've started this classic detective stories um, podcast, and um, uh, Jasper Lestrange did it, did it, did one for me. Secrets in the Snow went down phenomenally, as it would because of his talent. Um, it went down really, really, really well. And uh, I've got a couple coming up uh, that I've done for Christmas. I've got my my friend, the actor Ben Brinnicombe, hoping to do one for me. I've been actually gone on backstage, and I'm trying to audition some actors but i was moaning about this before wasn't i about i put up look i need an american male voice and i got like 200 applicants some of whom were actors not not narrators most of whom were they sent me the pictures i don't care what you look like uh and uh that's harsh but you know i mean i hope you like actor like what you look like but this is no consequence to me i'm only listening to your voice uh, i wanted a voice reel and i want and so you know i don't want don't you will and will not for this role you know, just look what I'm looking for. I need an American male. That's it. I don't need sort of a a, a Tasmanian female or a Tasmanian devil. Um, there's nothing wrong with somebody's triggered. I was reading something about trigger. How trigger when they 
first used to use it in for PTSD was fairly major. And we had things like complex PTSD, and this was for people who'd been through appalling, repeated horror. And now, like on TikTok, people have got complex, not just PTSD, complex PTSD. Why is that? Because my dad wouldn't buy me a Bow Wow. I've got a little cat, and I'm very fond of that, but daddy wouldn't buy me a Bow Wow, so I've got complex PTSD. So um, where was I? (laughs) That one. Uh, yeah, we're talking about Jasper, we're talking about, yeah, and people have said, you need to get so-and-so on, but oh, I was talking about actors, so I'm, I don't know really how to do it, but I'm going to hire somebody to do one, see what that goes like, and pay them, and, um, but funnily enough, somebody, there's some other podcasters, obviously, who you will have your favourites, and people have said, why don't you reach out to so-and-so, uh, so I might do that, I might, there's a couple, there's a couple, so I might do that just after I do this, um, yeah, but that's stage two, blather. Stage three blether is even more divorced from anything to do with. So, yeah, go over to Classic Detective Stories podcast. If you go to my YouTube channel, you will see at the bottom of the page Classic Detective Stories. If you're a podcast as qua podcast listener um, and you're on Spotify or Apple, if you just search for Classic Detective Stories, it's available on on all the platforms, in fact, now. So um, and it's growing. (coughs) Excuse me. And that's good. I might uh, chop that cough out. No, no, let's be honest. Let's be, let's give you the real, I'm a human being, for goodness sake. So Sheila's taking the dogs out. Callie's going to go back. Oh, somebody was asking, is Callie a fixture now? Well, Callie's probably going to go and live with her brother Bruno in, in Yorkshire near Harrogate. Um, and then they're going to go, the family are going to move to London, I think. But, um, so I will miss my little Callie, but I'm very much looking forward to getting Ruby back. And I was saying to Sheila, can we not have three though? She's like, oh, three's a lot of dogs. For, we've only, we haven't even got a big garden or anything. You know, it, you know, it's three's a lot. Okay. And then she said, I'm going to buy a box of tissues. I'm slow, you know, sometimes. So why? Because you're going to be heartbroken when Callie goes, my little Callie. Um, so that leads me on to, I don't think this is stage four. I think we're stage three, blather. So yesterday, I've wanted to go to Haworth, you know, Charlotte Brontes and all the Brontes um, in, in Yorkshire. And, uh, I wanted to go on, there's a railway line that goes from Carlisle to, ultimately to Leeds, and it goes over the Pennines and uh, the Carlisle to Settle Railway, it's called, it goes past Settle, and uh, it was very, very scenic, it's, it's wild up there, like the low, but if you know the Pennines, they're like a succession of low hills, some, some aren't so low, I mean, I think the top one's like 2,000 feet, so they're not like the Himalayas, but they're very bleak. And they've got lots of, they're very rough to walk over, just bog and boulders. And um, there are lots of rivers and marshes and things like that. So, and forest plantations and things. And But they're just, it was just amazing, actually. It was just, there's something about the countryside in winter, when, especially when you're in a train going past, and it just looked so... Oh, it just shiver, makes you shiver, but it's so beautiful. Well, anyway, we take the dogs with us to Haworth, remember? So we had to get the bus, to Ke- the train to Keithley in Yorkshire. So we put the dogs on, and Callie's fine, really, but Jasper doesn't like travelling. It just upsets him. And, and we, this is the first time he's been on a train, so we were hoping a train would be better. He doesn't really like the car. Um, he's a homeboy, really. I think that has a meaning, doesn't it? He's a home bird. 
And and um, he's not a bird, he's a dog, but uh, he's a bird dog. No, he's not a bird dog. Um, so that's... Anyway, so Callie escaped into the train. First time she was off the lean, I was, I was uh, a woman came. There was a lovely woman. She, she was, had a tea trolley that would come along the train, and it had tinsel on it. And she was doing um, mince pies and uh, I had coffee and a mince pie. Sheila had a mulled wine. She didn't have a mince pie because I had the last one. She had a mulled wine and a packet of... You're getting the real details now. Packet of uh, um, those cheese biscuit things. Uh, in the meantime, Callie had gone down, the, down to the next people, was going, oh, love me, love me, love me. And they were all loving her because she's very lovable. Oh, you lovely little dog. And Sheila's like, Tony, Tony, get Callie. And I couldn't get out because a woman with the trolley was there and she was lovely. She was very slow and she was quite old. And she was like, oh, lal, dogs got away. And, um, and I need to get, and, and I'm like actually relatively relaxed about it because Callie was having a lovely time. They were having a lovely time. And then the next thing is a bit later, Callie disappeared under the seat. I had her on the lead this time, but she went to, there was this young couple who clearly love dogs, and they were in that, that kind of relationship stage whereby they're probably going to get a dog before they get a baby, or a cat before they get a baby, you know. And so um, this young woman said, um, just to let you know, I've, I've got a dog on my lap. <laughs> and I hadn't noticed I got in trouble again. Uh, and But they were loving it. We, bought, we lent them Callie, and then we, got, we arrived at, eventually at Keithley slightly late. Now, Keithley's an old mill town, and it's seen better times, to be fair. And in the drizzling of a December rain, it was not, it was not the most joyous and uplifting experience. But uh, we got the bus. The bus drive was very, very nice. And we got off at Haworth, and Haworth was very pretty, but it was sodden with rain. Sheila was looking in shops. I went to the pub, packed with the dogs. Again, Callie came, said, good, oh, hello, love me, to the people next door who loved her. Uh, and I sat with my pint and waited and with Jasper trying to cuddle him and let him know I love him. And we went round the park and we let him off in the park just have a little run. Although it said, keep your dogs on leads, but there was nobody about, it was raining. Well, there were a few people about because of the Christmas market, but we were in a corner. And I really, really liked it. And um, it was very pretty. And we, I went, yeah, uh, I saw the inside of two pubs. I, did, I didn't go in any shops. Um, there's nothing I want to buy really. I've got most of my Christmas presents now, and um, and then we got the bus back. And she, oh, that poor dog hated that bus. He was honestly having panic attacks. You could see, and then he wasn't too bad on the train back. Or oh, we got to the station, nothing to eat. I had a chicken shawarma, but it wasn't very nice. And uh, um, we sat on this lonely stage. We were the only two with the dogs. It rained. We we're in a waiting room. It rained. It was actually quite. I liked it. I liked the atmosphere of it. But then all the trains were cancelled. Oh, no. And now I'm used to British railways because I used to try and go to work um, by train. And it was very common for one and then another to be cancelled. And then sometimes a bus would be put on and you'd get home, like, it takes an immense amount of time. So I'm like, oh, she, Sheila's like, but how can we get home? We've got two dogs. I've gone, oh, I'd be all right. We'll just find someone to stay. Well, we've got two dogs. And she was, I'm, I'm like, you know, I'm used to this, really. Nothing. Sad to say, nothing much works very well in Britain anymore. Um, certainly not the public services. Um, uh, and you may argue that's by design, but there we are, we won't get too political. Um, so 
because I said that I wanted this to be non-political, now I've just done a little political hint there. Um, but uh, yeah, it is true. Nothing really works very well anymore, which is a great shame. It used to work, um, and it works in France and Spain and you know why? Why and Germany? Why can't it work here? Anyway, by the by, so we got back, and then this morning. Jasper was so happy. He was so happy, and I, he came up and he, he gave me this big cuddle and 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 lick. And I'm thinking, it's almost like he's saying, "Dad, dad, dad, I had a terrible dream. I was on a train, <laughs> and uh, but I'm not. I woke up and I'm home." And he really likes being home. So uh, all's well that ends well. And uh, I've been down to Grassmere today, and it's been a gloriously sunny day, and the the mist and the um. And the sun on the mountains, and it, oh, it was beautiful. But anyway, so it's all good. We're heading towards Christmas now. Um, I thought that was a good story. And that is the end of Level 3 Blether. And it only leaves me to say, yeah, it's probably too late for you to buy a copy of my Christmas ghost stories. I've only got two copies here to send you out anyway. Uh, I, I'll maybe get a, I probably won't get a, a, a restock of those, because not, not till next Christmas. Um, other books still are, I think I've got a few more Combringo stories, but have a look on the Etsy store if, you, if you're in the UK. If you're in the US, please go to your local bookstore and uh, please buy the set of books by Tony Walker. If, if you don't have any money, that's fine. Don't do it. But there's a rhyme about that, isn't there? Anyway, I'm going to finish. I think this is a level, level five, brother. So every year I play certain songs uh, at this time of year, and one is um, I play the Albion Band Christmas album, which I think you can't get anymore. But anyway, in that, Ashley Hutchings um, declaims not to music, and it's, uh, Mac we merry both more and less, for now is the time of Christmas. Let no man come into this hall, groom page nor yet marshal, but that some sport he bring withal. For now is the time of Christmas. If that he say he cannot sing, some other sport then let him bring, that it may please this feasting. For now is the time of Christmas. If he say he cannot do, then for my love ask him no more, but to the stocks then let him go. For now is the time of Christmas. Isn't that so? Isn't that so?